In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel had a dream where he was given understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's, or he was given a vision where he's given understanding of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the Lord talked to him about the times and the seasons and the things that God was unfolding. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples on the Mount of Olives with Jesus asked him, Lord, is this the time? Is it right now? Are you about to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to understand the times or the seasons that my father has laid out. It's set by his own authority. And then he gave them the promise of the Holy Spirit. You'll be endued with power. See, God has a plan that he is unfolding in the midst of the nations. And Israel is a part of that plan, just as we're hearing this morning. You know, visiting, visiting. Can you just turn that thing off? It's driving me crazy. Thank you. Love you, man. God, God has a plan that he is unfolding amongst the nations. And, you know, just, yeah, visiting Israel this, this past week, you get this sense that you are just standing in the midst of prophecy being fulfilled and unfolding. You know, we started in the Dead Sea, and as we were wandering around there, several people said, I, I thought this was the land of milk and honey. <laughs> what? All I see is rock and sand, and this is like a desolate place. Is this what we're going to see for the next 10 days? And then we began to move up the, the Jordan Valley towards the Sea of Galilee and you began to see greenhouses and vineyards and olive groves and orchards and date palms and orange trees and uh, banana trees and pomegranate trees just out in the wild. Nobody cultivating them so heavy laden with fruit that their, their branches are hanging uh, right down uh, to the ground. And it's hard to believe that in the 1860s, Mark Twain visited that country and he said, this is a barren and desolate wasteland. I don't know why anyone would want to live here. See, God has ordained times and seasons for the nations. And so when, when, when Paul makes this reference to times and seasons, it's particularly about Israel. And it's going to culminate in something called the day of the Lord. In the Bible... The word day, so we've lost it. I got some references that I was going to show you guys. <laughs> Shouldn't have told you to turn that off. In the Bible, the word day can refer, obviously, to a 24-hour day. We understand that. But it also can refer to a longer time. You notice in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord speaks of a day, and he's talking about a 24-hour cycle. The next verse, he uses that same word, and he's talking about a one-week cycle. The day of creation in verse 3. The day of creation. But he's talking about the whole week in verse 4. Now, uh, when Paul references the day of the Lord, he is talking about a time when God will come and he will punish the nations. And he will prepare Israel for his return. And he will reveal himself to them as the Messiah. And so, you know, if we were to look up just the day of the Lord and do a bunch of Reference checks, I would have taken you this morning to Joel chapter 2. I would have taken you to Amos chapter 5, Zephaniah chapter 1. I was going to take you to Isaiah chapter 2. And you would have seen very clearly that the day of the Lord is not a good thing. That the scripture warns, whoa, the day of, it's a day of wrath. It is a day of trouble. In, in Jeremiah chapter 30, that same a day of the Lord is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. And many prophetic students, uh, you know, 
believe that it's the day of the Lord is speaking of the time of the great tribulation that revelation so clearly describes to us this, this season, this day that's more than a 24 hour cycle. So you've got times and seasons, which is a reference to the people of Israel. You've got the day of the Lord, which is not a good day. It's speaking of a coming time of tribulation. And then this term, a thief in the night, which is one that we're familiar with. It's language that Jesus used. It describes the suddenness and the surprise of people at the coming of the Lord. You know, when we were on this trip, uh, Gary, Gary got to meet just some awesome people. And I was having lunch with one of the couples from the Calgary church. And they were telling me the story about how thieves broke into their house in the middle of the night, robbed them and left. And they never knew that all along they were upstairs sleeping and their house had been pillaged. But then they said, but get this, it happened to our friends too. The thieves went into their house, even went into the garage, loaded up their car and drove away with their car. And they never heard a thing. We get the picture. That the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There'll be a suddenness to it. There will be an unexpectedness to it. You know, Jesus used the imagery of that, that language to teach his disciples that they need to be spiritually awake. That we need to be watching. That we need to be busy with the work of the kingdom while we wait for the coming of the Lord. So let's put these three, these three phrases into context again. Just remembering them. And remember that, uh, well, check this out. Go to chapter 4 for a second, verse 16. Remember in chapter 4, we were talking about the rapture. It says this in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In chapter 4, Paul told us about the hope that we have for those who've gone on before us. And then he told us the hope that we have for those who are alive, that Jesus Christ is coming and he's going to rapture his church. Take them off the face of the earth. And now look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and seasons, who's he talking about? The nation of Israel. Brothers, talking to believers, talking to Christians, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3. While people are saying, well, not the church, while people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, a woman, and they will not escape. People will be saying there is peace and security when this day comes. What people? Well, I think it was our first day or our second day that we were in Israel. Avi was sitting at the front of the bus as he always does, giving us a low down on the mic, and we had a Palestinian driver. So Avi, short for Abraham, Jewish, Israeli, our driver, Palestinian. His name's Ferris. No relation to Bueller's. Great guy, Ferris. And Avi said this with Ferris concurring. He said, I am a normal person with a family. And that man is a normal person with a family. And we want peace. I want to raise my kids and I want to raise my grandchildren. He wants to raise his kids 
and raise his grandchildren. I, I want to work and he wants to work. You go home to North America and you tell them what you see in the media is not true. We want peace. Said the politicians are liars. It's politicians and it's fanatics. That the average person like the two of us work together, love one another, can deal with one another. We want peace. What is the desire? Peace and security. And Paul says a day will come when they will say, finally, it's here. We got it. We got the peace and security that we were hoping for. You know, we believe the scripture teaches that it's the Antichrist who will negotiate that. But then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. Hey, Sherry. I was talking to Alan yesterday and he said, maybe we'll have the baby today. I said, don't, don't have the baby. Wait till after church tomorrow. Cause then I can use Sherry as an illustration for the message. Doesn't she look awesome? I mean, yeah. She was due October 30th. Let's pray for Sherry right now. If you guys are right there beside her, let's just, just lay hands on her. Okay. Jesus, we just thank you for Sherry and Alan, for their family, for Hannah. We thank you for that little baby that's in the womb. And Lord, when you give the word, the labor pains will come and there'll be no stopping them until a baby comes. And then there will be joy. And so Lord, we pray for Sherry. Father, we just pray for physical strength for her. We pray for rest for her while she waits, Lord. I pray God, as wonderful as she looks, I'm sure she feels tired. God, would you give her strength? Would you prepare her for that day? We pray for a safe delivery of that baby, Lord. We pray your blessing upon that child, your grace, your love to be upon that child's life, Lord. We look forward to meeting that little baby. Thank you, Jesus. Look, a baby's going to be born. Amen? Labor pains are going to come upon Sherry, and there's going to be no stopping it. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be a pain, but then there will be joy because there will be a baby. Look, the truth about the day of the Lord that Paul's talking about, it's, th there's going to be pain, there's going to be trial, there's going to be trouble, but when it's all done, there's going to be the birth of a kingdom. When God's judgments are finished, God's son will return with glory and power. Like Tammy told us, his feet will descend and touch the Mount of Olives and it will split beneath them. Living waters will flow. A river will flow from that mountain right down to the Dead Sea and that which is dead where no life is will come alive. We stood at En Gedi. And Ezekiel prophesied that on the shores of En Gedi, men will throw in their fishing nets and they'll draw fish from the water. Isn't it awesome? There will be the birth of a kingdom and the king will come. Look at verse 1. I want to point something out. We'll just read through to verse 4. Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, talking to Christians, you, take note of that word, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that that day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people, talking about someone else now, are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon 
them. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, verse 4, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Look, we can see that Paul is talking clearly about two different groups of people here. Talking about those who know Christ and are saved, who have been born again, who have been regenerated. uh, And talking about those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are lost and dead and blind in their sin. And they will be caught off guard. And they will not escape. But Paul says that day will not surprise you. Why? Because he says you are not in darkness. You, you, God, you know, God warned the people in Noah's day. And yet only eight of them listened to the message that Noah preached and, and got onto the ark with him. God warned the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and they would not listen. And only Lot and his family were saved from God's judgment. Look, Jesus came on the scene and he walked those shores of the Sea of Galilee. And and when he came to the temple, he preached this message. He said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus used the examples of of the flood and he used the example of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. And he said, it'll be like that in the days when the day of the Lord comes. People will be eating and drinking and living life and getting married and doing their thing. And it will come upon them like a flood and they'll be caught off guard. Jesus at the same time warned in, in his, during his ministry about the destruction of Jerusalem. And what happened when the Romans came and they laid siege to that city as we learned just so clearly while we were on that trip. So they came to squash the Jewish rebellion Guess who was not in the city because they had escaped because they listened to the words of Jesus? The Christians. They were long gone. See, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. See, there's a vast difference between Jesus, the light of the world, and walking in darkness. Between day and night, there's a difference. And when it comes to the day of the Lord and the return of Christ, It's only unbelievers who are in the dark. Believers know what's happening. And now that doesn't mean we set times or dates. We've seen that lots, right? Over our lifetime. We've even seen that in the last few years. People setting times and dates. It doesn't mean that. That's just, that's embarrassing. We're not going to do that. But what it does mean is this. That it's possible to live this life with an expectancy. Even when you don't know the date and time. You think Alan and Sherry are living with an expectancy? The date they set was wrong. (laughs) But they're living with expectancy. Waiting to welcome that little one in. And so verse 5 says this. For you are all children of light. Children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep. As others do. But let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. Now, we've seen Paul use this language of sleeping. In, the, in this uh, book already. In this, and, and he used it to talk about death. The picture here is this. It's talking about inactivity, ignorance, spiritual ignorance, spiritual insensitivity. And the message is this. No, wake up. Wake up from apathy. Wake up from vain fantasies. Wake up from worldly dreams. As Christians, 
our, our purpose is not to gain wealth or to gain fame or to live the self-centered life, but to use our time that we have and the abilities that God has given us uh, and to find adventure and excitement in living for the kingdom of God rather than the, the, a life of self-indulgence. So Paul says, be alert. Don't lose sight of reality. Live with your eyes wide open. Those who sleep, sleep at night. What do you say to the person who sleeps all day? Get a job, man. That's not normal. You don't sleep during the day. And Christians should not be at sleep. What do you say to the, what, what, what do we just observe in life about the person who is drunk during the day? Man, their life is out of control. They're shipwrecking everything. Marriages, relationships, work, this and that. He says, don't be drunken and live in, in a, a stupid, be sober. Be sober in your thinking, not, not meaning that you, you, know, you don't live with joy, not meaning that we're the frozen chosen, not meaning that we live life without humor. Without, I mean, we laughed so hard on that trip. It was just awesome. Sober-minded simply means this. Have a realistic outlook on life. Be calm and sane, not complacent, not frustrated, not afraid, not freaking out at tragic news, not losing heart. God knows the future. And so we can go about the work of the kingdom and, and have joy and be sharp in our hearts and minds and just teach Jesus, proclaim Jesus. But the unsaved people of the world, we see this in this text, they're, they're not alert. They are like drunken men. They're, they're living with this, this false sense of paradise and enjoying a false sense of security. And so he says this in verse 8. Try and go quick here. You guys are awesome. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love. We've seen these three before. See them all throughout scripture. Faith and love, he says, are like a breastplate. They protect your heart. Faith towards God will result in love towards people. And faith and love help us keep soft hearts towards God and towards others. He talks about hope. That hope is like, it's like a helmet. When you put your hope in Jesus Christ, it just, it protects your thinking. It protects your mind. It protects your thoughts. And look, this kind of hope that he's talking about, it's not like hope about wishing upon a star or a wish that you, you give before you blow out the birthday candles. No, this is a hope that is a confident expectation in the work of God and the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, that's to be the direction of your thinking. Confident in the cross, Confident and take hope. It'll guard your thinking. The unsaved mind, what is it set upon? The things of this world. The believers to set their mind on the things that are above. Set his mind on Jesus Christ. Set his mind on the work of salvation. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You know, for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no need of fear for future judgment because that is not God's plan for those who have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. 
Yeah, you know, what I'm about to say here, I'd say not, not everyone will agree. We won't all agree in this room. You know, I have, I have very good Christian friends who we don't agree with this point on this point. But I think the pattern of Scripture and the words of the Bible clearly tell us that God has not destined us for wrath. But to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we might ask, will Christians go through the day of the Lord? The great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the time where God will send his judgment upon earth dwellers. And I have to say, I don't think so as I read this this morning. I think the scripture clearly supports the fact that God is going to remove his church before the day. That's why we're not going to be caught off guard. It will not surprise us because Jesus will remove us and then the day will start. One of the themes that I've used this fall and as we've been going through the book of Thessalonians is this, is that God has not promised us ease. He has promised us his presence. See, Christians have always gone through times of tribulation. That's part and parcel with following Jesus Christ. But they will not go through the great tribulation with the godless world. I think Thessalonians and the rest of the Bible supports that fact. The great tribulation is a time when God will judge the Gentile nations and he will prepare the nation of Israel for the coming Messiah. And Zechariah prophesies that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only child. They will see that they pierced their Messiah and they will turn in faith to him. He says, therefore, encourage one another. Verse 11. And build one another up just as you're doing. Look, I don't find the message of going through the great tribulation to be incredibly encouraging. I I don't want that. But it's very encouraging to know that we are children of the day and that the day of the Lord is not to surprise us. It's encouraging to know that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. What are we looking for? We as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are watching for his coming. Be alert. Be awake. Be sober-minded. That brings us to this question this morning. It's this. If you were to die today, do you know that you would have eternal life? It's the only question that really matters, isn't it? It's the only question that really matters because If Jesus isn't your Lord and Savior, if you have not turned from your sin in repentance and turned in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are by definition what the scripture calls this, a child of wrath. You're dead in your sin and you're dead in your trespasses. And you might say to yourself, but I'm a good person. That's what Ariella said that morning at the kitchen table. I get the whole Jesus thing. I'm a good person. But what you need to know is this, is that your definition of goodness and God's definition of goodness are not the same thing. It's not the same standard. You see, when I I measure my goodness, I pick on one of my neighbors. I find the one that I clearly see myself as better than, and I slide the scale and adjust it, and I say, see, I'm a good person. But the measurement that God uses to define goodness is himself. The measurement that God uses to define his goodness is his law. The measurement that God uses to define 
goodness is the Lord Jesus Christ who perfectly fulfilled and obeyed all the law of God. And so if I'm going to measure myself and measure my goodness, then what I must measure myself against is Jesus Christ. I must measure myself against the law of God. I can't place myself on a sliding scale any longer. And God's law shows us what he considers to be the definition of goodness. You know, Jesus said this. If you look on a woman with lust, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. He said that he considered hatred in the heart to be as murder. And so when I place myself on the scale of God's law, I'm guilty as an adulterer. I'm guilty as a murderer. And the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And that's where every one of us is against God's law. Adulterers, murderers, thieves, liars, idolatrous, blasphemers. Say, I never committed adultery with Jesus said, if you look on with your heart, you're guilty. I never murdered him. If you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you're guilty. See, God's law puts the squeeze on you and me, and it reveals that no one is righteous. No, not one. The law awakens our conscience and reveals that we all fall short of the glory of God. We miss the mark. Shot for the target and didn't hit it. And what we see, even in this text here, is that there is a day of wrath coming. And that God will see that justice is served. And that when the day of wrath comes, he will drive from his presence from all of eternity those of whom he is not Lord. You know, you might think to yourself, God, would, would God do that? Would he do that to me? Look at God abhors injustice. His divine nature demands that justice is served and he will see that it is served. Just like any good human judge, he will see that the law is served and that disobedience to the law is punished. And the, the reality is, is that for each of us, we're lawbreakers and God's justice will see that his plans and his law is served. But the scripture tells us about his mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Or as John chapter 3 tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, we were up on the temple mount there, there's that golden dome. In Arabic, it says all the way around the dome, God does not have a begotten son. God does not have a begotten son. God does not have a begotten son. God does have a begotten son. His name is Jesus Christ. And he loved us so much that he sent Jesus to, to take the punishment for our sin. He became the object of God's wrath on our behalf. He obeyed all of God's law perfectly and in obedience to his father. He, he went to the cross and he took my sin and my shame and it was nailed to him. And the scripture just tells us for you to receive mercy. 
For you to receive that substitutionary work that Jesus did on your behalf, you must repent. It simply means to have a change of mind. It means you can't look at your life any longer and define it with that sliding scale. You need to look at your life and weigh it against God's law. You have to be honest with yourself and confess to God that you are a sinner. That is repentance, to have a change of mind about yourself. But it also, the the second thing you need to do is have a change of mind about Jesus. And acknowledge the work that Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. You know, picture, maybe just close your eyes for a minute. I'll close with this. Picture your heart. In your mind, just picture your heart. And now imagine that sitting on the throne of your heart is you. See, when you acknowledge what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, it means this. You have to abdicate the throne. You must remove yourself from the throne of your life and invite Jesus Christ to take your place. Now imagine Jesus sitting on that throne and pray with me. Brian, I'm going to just invite you to come, okay, on the guitar. Pray with me. Jesus, I repent of my sin. I never saw it for what it was until I considered it in the light of your law. Please forgive my sin. Jesus, I acknowledge that on the cross, You gave your life in my place. I thank you for that act of mercy. I thank you for that act of grace. Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin and I turn in faith to you. I believe in you. I abdicate the throne of my life to you. I get off the throne, Jesus, and I invite you to take that place. Jesus, you are Lord. Amen. Amen.